0: Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. Every restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am Elle Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In.
1: Hi, Elle. It's Susan. So excited to meet you in the walk-in. I have been styling ice cream cakes all day. I've been making some peanut butter jelly sandwiches, look like safari animals. And I'm excited to catch up with you and talk food styling and talk about old school R&B music and good old days. Can't wait.
0: Today, Susan Vu is stepping into the walk-in with me. I first met Susan years ago when I was interning at the Food Network, and Susan was the boss. I've learned so much from this woman over the years. I've even had my very own walk-in, wall-slide moment during my first food styling job for her. I'm so excited to connect with my old friend and mentor to hear how she continues to create opportunities for the younger generation. In addition to being a total culinary rock star, you know, food styling for Tyra Banks and Chrissy Teigen, She also makes it her business to increase diversity on sets and kitchens. Let's step into the walk-in with Susan. Susan Vu, I'm so excited to have you here in the walk-in with me today. It's been a long time since I've seen you. It's been so long since we've seen each other face-to-face, but we've kept in touch over the years, we met in I'm gonna say roughly the end of 2009, I was interning at the Food Network and you were being a boss in the kitchen.
1: <laughs> I remember these times and I have to say,, Elle, like I as I don't know if you know, I have like no social media like at all. I think years had gone by and we hadn't talked. So I didn't have cable for my 13 years in New York City. And I would go to the library and get DVDs. And I saw America's Test Kitchen as one of the DVDs. And I checked it out from Mm -hmm. the library. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's Elle. Look at her. She is killing it. And you were just doing the thing. And you were so good on camera. And honestly, it was so nice to see you as a Black chef being... Centered on that kind of show. I was so remarkable. I loved it. I remember sending it to like Miriam from Food Network, and I was like, oh my God, Elle. And of course, everyone knew because everyone's like on social, Um, but I was just like, (laughs) oh my God. So I found you via a DVD at the library. Isn't that so funny?
0: That is a very funny story, but also the same way I felt about you when I came into the Food Network. It was very nice to see. Another woman of color, like, really in there running things. You know, I have no <laughs> idea whose boss you are, but I definitely felt like I needed to be doing something when I heard you talking. Like, let me get busy because Suhu says we need to do the thing. And it was important to me. You know, like, people respected you and you were a master of your craft and people knew that. And that meant so much to me, that representation. And the fact that you were immediately kind to me was like, whoa. Of
1: Well, you you know, it was
0: great.
1: I think you and I came up at a time in the food media world where it was a little bit of a mix of old school and new school. You know, like you had the old, old school where you had like Emeril and, you know, Rachel Ray when we were still shooting in Studio A. You remember those days, like back in the day?
0: Yes, I do. I do. And then we
1: kind of went through this transition where we started to go more towards digital. We kind of started to use more celebrity chefs, I feel like, rather than chef chefs. And I feel so innately Mm -hmm. grateful to have been in that transitional time because I think that we got this training that was so incredibly important during that time. Because to work at the Food Network, I think people always think, oh, it's just, you know, it's just food TV. But we were catering. I remember working with you on some catering. And that's fun because you can actually see how someone cooks because you're able to kind of put your own flair, see how someone seasons and you know all mm-hmm. those kind of things. Um, so you had to know how to cater. It was super important at that time to have restaurant experience, and then you were learning to food style. You're maybe learning a little bit of recipe developing yes. with the test kitchen and things like that. And I just thought it was so great because it was a place where you could get all sorts of different training and all different aspects of food media. And I just do think that it's something that is much harder to find nowadays.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I. I think it's still important after having left Food Network. I love the fact that we always had interns because, you know, I think Mm -hmm. if you came in and you wanted to learn, there were a lot of people that were willing to teach and just even having you shadow and things like that. And I just don't think there's as much opportunity now for that kind of really immersive Mm -hmm. training. And so I still try to do that wherever I go, even if it's like a freelance shoot and I can bring on someone that was a steward and wants to like move up and maybe start assisting. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to still bring people into the industry and really show them like the tools to be successful with it and everything like that. So I don't know. I just thought it was so wonderful to meet you there, especially at that time.
0: I definitely looked forward to those days where we would come in and do different types of work. And you're right. The landscape has definitely changed in food media and there's not so many opportunities for learning. So I, too, really valued the moments where I could come in and work side by side with someone, just be guided, you know, like never just kind of thrown into it. To this day, I tell people that interning at the Food Network is basically like the boot camp of culinary media it's kind of like if you've worked on a cruise ship which i have if you've worked on a cruise ship anyone will hire you because they know you have a ridiculous work ethic like long hours on days don't bother you all of those times are all those things um they're definitely ingrained in me and since we're going back in the day i think this is a great time to get into the first segment of the podcast which is called fifo do you know what fifo means
1: first in first out that's right yeah that's
0: right FIFO, first in, first out. So I want you to tell me a little bit about Susan before coming to New York, maybe, or just give me a sense of like who you are before TV, outside of TV, how you got to New York, how how we got to the time that we met. Give me a quick little zip through oh, time. I love that. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I was born in Seattle, Washington to Priscilla Tran, my wonderful mother. I don't know if you ever got to eat some of her cooking, but she's an amazing, amazing cook. And then my father, Mm -hmm. Quang Vu. I was first generation. They had come from Vietnam to make a better life for us. And I was their first born here. And we grew up in Seattle and it was a wonderful place to grow up. Mm -hmm. There was a wonderful supermarket called Wajamaya, which is Japanese. And I went to elementary school a five minute walk from our store. Mm-hmm. So I was really immersed in this super diverse community. And mm-hmm. I was there probably until fifth grade. And then we moved to the suburbs. And I remember going to the suburbs and I was like, this is very, very different from you know mm-hmm. <laughs> kindergarten through fifth grade. Uh, I was all of a sudden like, oh, I'm different. Like people kind of think like my food is weird and stuff, you know? And so it was interesting, but I also found a really fantastic group of friends that I still have to this day. And it was wonderful to always like have them come over and try my mom's food and kind of introducing this kind of new world to them and share my fun snacks and things like that. You know, grew up and went to college for hospitality business management in Mm -hmm. Seattle. And then I decided I really love cooking. Like I don't, know what it was, but it was just something that I always just talked about incessantly. And like, I remember one of my best friends, he was like, Susan, you just like, don't shut up about food. Like, maybe you should do it. And I was like, huh, maybe I should. And then I literally went to culinary school and I went to this little community college in Seattle in uh, downtown. It's called Seattle Culinary Academy. And then when I made the choice to go to a community college, I remember having people say, you know, it's really competitive out there. You're probably not going to like get the kind of work that you want. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to learn as much as I can and I'll figure it out. Like, I think that I'm a hard worker and I have never, and this actually surprises people (laughs) I was a terrible student. I was really bad all the way up to college, like Mm. C grades, sometimes Ds, because I could care less about anything besides food. (laughs) I just didn't care about anything until I got to culinary school. And then all of a sudden, I was surrounded by people that love food. And I found all this passion inside of me that was like, this is what you're doing This is it. And I did one and a half years and it was super intensive. I remember at the end of it, I said, You know, I really want to get into recipe developing. Because I had found that through this time, I had a really type A personality when it came to what I wanted to do. I was really detail focused and I was like, I think that's what I want to do. I want to try recipe testing. But this was maybe like 15, 14, 15 years ago. There was none of that in Seattle at the time. Still not Mm -hmm. very much. And where I needed to go was New York. And I said, I'm going to move there when I graduate. Give me two weeks once I graduate, and I'm going to the East Coast. And I did. I packed up two boxes. Each of them weighed 50 pounds. So I brought 100 pounds worth of stuff to New York at a 30-day sublet. And um, I interviewed to work at the Food Network with Rob Leifer because there was a contact from one of my instructors. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I worked as a server front of the house at the Gansavort Hotel. I was so lucky. You know, I got the front of the house job and then I got in contact with Rob. But you know how it is at Food Network where most of the time, if you are a freelancer, you will probably have been an intern first because you get all that training. And so because I had never interned there before... My entry was a little bit different. Um, he was like, "Okay, well, since I don't really know what you can do, we're gonna have to wait until it's like the perfect project for you." And I was like, "Okay." So I emailed him every Monday for a year and a half, and it would be like, "Hey, Rob, this is Susan. Just checking in to see if there's freelance work. If not, that's okay. If so, that's great. Um, if not, I'll just reach out to you, you know, next week." A year and a half, and then finally one day he was like, "Can you bake cookies?" And I said, "Yeah, I hate baking cookies. Like, there is nothing <laughs> in my life that I I just don't like things that are really intricate. I'm yeah. very rustic. Like, if I could just put it all into a cookie sheet, I'll make a sheet pan cookie. I don't want to be like diving it out yes. twenty four things of dough. Like, don't have me ice anything, please." But I was like, "Oh, of course, yeah, I love baking cookies." And so I went in to bake cookies, and they like my work. And then from there, I was brought onto Bobby's show. I was able to work on a cookbook, and then. I think like a year, a year and a half went by and then I got the full-time job. And I feel really lucky that I took that huge leap of faith to go from Seattle to New York because truthfully, my whole family was worried about me. They were like, why the hell is she doing this? You know, my mom like called my family, was like, I think that maybe she's like really depressed. And I was like, mom, I'm not depressed. I just want to (laughs) try something new. Um, And so, you know, I think doing that really instilled in something to me that was just like, I think it's important to listen to your gut. And I think that everything in life Mm -hmm. that is really, truly worth doing scares you a lot.
0: I want to move to you getting to New York after sending emails to Rob, who is just one of the most interesting people I've ever met, Sending Rob emails for a year to get the job. You finally get in off of baking these cookies. What happens after that? Do you get there and do you see other people who look like you? What is your first vibe at the Food Network? Like, what's the giving?
1: Well, it's interesting because I think that there has been a really big reckoning as of recently. Some of the things I'll say, I regret and feel kind of stupid for how blind I was back in the day about some of the things. But I thought entering into Food Network, it seemed incredibly diverse. But what I found, Elle, and I don't know if you feel the same, that department, which I consider more blue collar, because, you know, Mm -hmm. we're cleaning, we're schlepping, we're cooking, we're doing all that. And then you look at culinary production, you know, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit more white collar. You sit at a desk, you're usually writing up things. And then you look at the test kitchen, which is recipe developing. Mm -hmm. It was all white. Yes. And how I did not notice that for so many years is beyond me because I only saw within myself. And I remember people asking me, like, do you want to move up to culinary production? And I was like, no, I don't. And I don't necessarily consider that a move up. You know what I mean? Like, I thought we were yes. on the same level because mm-hmm. we just are doing different jobs, but we're here together. And then yes. all of a sudden culinary producers like moved up these ranks that I didn't even know existed. And Mm -hmm. I've had this talk a lot about blue collar versus white collar and what culinary producers look like as opposed to food stylists that are on the ground cooking and things like Mm -hmm. that. And it's just, it's all, and I'm going to say it, it's all white women. And -hmm. that is something that I have noticed and is something that I have talked about a lot, especially during this time, because As you know, there were a lot of great people that came through the Food Network, and there were a lot of people of color that came through that wanted to be culinary producers, that wanted to do other things, you know, to do styling, and they were very good at it, but wanted opportunities to do even more. And I just don't feel like they were given the same opportunities as some of the white interns and freelancers that came through. I'm just putting it out there. And I've had so many discussions with friends that have felt slighted that have mm-hmm. felt that they weren't given the same opportunities as some of the other people that have gone through. Because the faces yeah. in the chairs are the same.
0: That's right. That's right. You know? I don't disagree with you there. Do you feel that that was like a, a moment for you? And before you answer... I want to let you know that mm-hmm. sometimes when you're in the walk-in, you have these wall slide moments, right? It's This is the segment we call the wall slide. Mm-hmm. It's kind of where you have your, maybe your meltdown, you oh, know. Oh,
1: yes, yes. Uh,
0: you hit your knees. The
2: wall slide.
0: I'm wondering, because I shared that same vision with you, like being in the Food Network, I think at the, about the time you're referring to now, I probably had transitioned from intern to freelance. Mm-hmm. And was definitely kind of working in a different capacity and seeing different roles and also recognizing like the blue collar versus, you know, white collar, you know, throwing up the rabbit ears when we say that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the way that these jobs were assigned and to whom they were assigned and the way pay was distributed Mm -hmm. as a result of it, I definitely became more aware. So I know if it was happening for me at that beginning stage level, you've been there for a little while at this point and Mm -hmm. was probably really a little more deeply into it, you say you didn't particularly care to go into culinary production, so to speak, like as a producer, but did your mind change and then you found yourself being met with challenges or resistance or like, you know, what was, uh, what did you do with that kind of like light bulb aha moment that happened for you when you started to realize what was actually happening?
1: Well, for me, when I moved to New York and I got the job at Food Network, I was like, I'm going to stay here forever they're going to have to kick me out, kicking and screaming. I was like, it is just Willy Wonka's, you know, chocolate factory here. And I just loved it. And then as the time went on, I really felt, like I said, and you know, I don't apologize for the way that I work. I try to Mm -hmm. not miss details. My work ethic is hard. And I have that same expectations for the teams that I lead, but I try to give my teams the tools to succeed. So Mm -hmm. my rule is, I'm going to give you a list of every single thing you have to do. And it's going to be super detailed. And if I miss something, I'm never going to get mad at you. But these are my expectations that I have. You know what I mean? There are two types of leaders. There's the type of leader that gives you the tools to be successful. And then there the are leaders that don't necessarily give you the tools, but get mad when you don't read their mind. Do you know what I mean? Yes. When I came up, it was literally like, here's a script and there's a cart, fill it. Right, And I remember the stylist that I was training under was yelling at me because I would miss things. And I remember the talent years later was like, Susan, I'm so sorry that she treated you like that. It was really hard Mm. for me to watch. And so Mm -hmm. I actually learned a lot from that. So when I give, you know, descriptions to people, it's like, this is exactly what I want. And I would say most of the time I usually get it. And sometimes I don't. And, you know, I'm like, okay, what can I do better as a leader to do this? But let me tell you, if you do that a couple times with me, I'm probably not going to have you back just because like Mm -hmm. the way that we work isn't working together. And like, that's how it is. Um, But because of that, I think with Food Network, there was really this tendency to gloss over things and to not discuss things that weren't working. And Mm. that's not how I am. I'm very much Mm -hmm. like, okay, that shoot kind of didn't go great. Let's talk about it. Like, how do we change it? but they just want every shoot to be a great shoot. So like I would voice things. I'd be like, I think that we should change this. I don't know. I didn't really, this person really wasn't working out. I don't know if we should have them back or like maybe we should talk to them and give them the opportunity to be better. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of like, oh, they're, you know, I think it was just kind of like just a very different style of managing people. And I was very different from that. So I think Mm -hmm. sometimes I was kind of like the whistleblower, I guess, you know what I mean? Like it's like, because I'm the loudest voice there. So right. sometimes people are like, well, why is Susan always the person bringing it up stuff? Maybe she's the one causing it. So I kind of started feeling maybe this isn't the place for me. Because I just started feeling like the way that I manage and the way that I chose to work yeah, just didn't seem to always fit in with what the network wanted to present themselves as. And so after five years, I was just like, you know what? I got to take another leap of faith. There are other people out there that I can work for. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up leaving and it was really sad because it wasn't because I didn't love my job. I still loved it. I just didn't feel like I was given the tools to really be successful anymore. And I took the leap of faith and I left and I was like, I'm going to work for myself for a little while. And I'm really going to pick and choose who I work with. And it was amazing though, Elle, when I started to go out to different production teams, because. You know, as you know, at the network, usually when you go onto a set, you're looking around. Sometimes you are most likely the only person of color that's there. That's right. You know, and I would, Mm -hmm. you know, I would go to other teams and I'd be like, oh, wow, there's like a black EP. There's an Asian person in props, you know. And I was like, wow, there is you know, our industry isn't quite as white as I had. I, I just thought that was the norm, quite frankly.
0: Yeah. We were in a bubble. I mean, that that's that was like the pinnacle of culinary media at the time. That's all we knew for yeah, sure. Yeah. And
1: then I think it just started to, I started to see what it was and what it could be, what food media could be. And that was really, mm-hmm. really amazing. And I started to take it upon myself to You know, those culinary producers or those food stylists that weren't getting the opportunities at Food Network, I was trying to bring them into different projects. And just to see how hungry and how, you know, people that really want the opportunities that don't get it as often, just to see them excel when they do get those opportunities is really remarkable.
0: So you found opportunities to kind of bring in new talent, new voices, new faces. And that sounds like that really inspired you Um, and maybe kind of like re-sparked your flame for the work.
1: It totally, totally did. And then I actually went to BuzzFeed Tasty and I really felt there was a moment at BuzzFeed Tasty where you were seeing all sorts of different cultures being featured and actually Mm -hmm. seeing the faces of the people making the food. It was really astonishing to me and it was amazing to go in there and just see all these really diverse young people making this content that they actually believed in. And I remember at Tasty, they actually started celebrating Black Heritage Month, you know, Pride Month, Mm -hmm. Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. They were celebrating these diversity months, which was so important. And I remember being there and they asked Sue, would you make your pho for us? And I was like, absolutely. And it was the first time anyone from food media had asked me To make something that was important to me, you know, because Mm -hmm. I had been asked before to, like, you know, come on and make a crescent roll or something like that. But I was just like, I'm not gonna get out of what I'm really uncomfortable with for a crescent roll wreath or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know. But for Mm -hmm. them to be like, we honestly wanna just hear your story, wanna see you make the dish, and we wanna feature it during Asian American Heritage Month. And I was like, okay. And I did it. And it was fine because it was mostly my hands. But I remember at one point they were like, okay, now you're gonna have to say, your name. And I like forgot my name. I had to do it like eight times. And <laughs> my friend Ben was like, do you want me to hold up a cue card for you? I was like, no, I swear to God, I can say my name. I swear."
0: It's that moment of, like, your representation coming full circle. Like, that's a big moment. Like, a lot of people downplay it, but A, it's not easy being on camera, and B, when you really have that moment where you're, like, self-representing and, like, your fullness, your 100%ness, that's a big deal. It
1: was, and they did it really well. I worked with producers that I really loved, and they made me feel really comfortable, and um, I like that they were just asking you know, it was just kind of a little bit of storytelling, but showing the food as well. And then the video did pretty well. And people came out of the comments mostly positive and just like, oh, it's really nice to see a Vietnamese woman making mm-hmm. a Vietnamese dish and not seeing, you know, a white New York Times columnist making it or something. You know yeah. what I mean? And so, That was really fantastic to hear the responses for that. And then shortly thereafter, I actually moved to LA to be the senior culinary manager at Tasty. Mm. And it was so wonderful because I sat down at a manager's table and it was a black line producer, a Hispanic producer, and also a black producer. And I was like, this is so amazing. And I never took it for granted. And they were like, Sue... We're very different from other places that you've worked at. Inclusivity and diversity is extremely important to us. And we would love to see what you can do with that. And so I was bringing in newer develop. I was like, I don't want to have developers that don't have, if we're asking people to make a significant dish, you know, like if we're making like a Puerto Rican dish for Christmas or, you know, a Jamaican dish or something like that, as much as we can, right. let's tr- we're in L.A., Let's get people that actually come from those cultures to come in. And I was like, I don't care if they've never developed a recipe. I will teach them. I will have someone next to them writing down what they do. I want to tell their stories. Yeah. Um, And I thought that was very, very important. And we try to do that as much as possible.
0: Henry David Thoreau once said, What is the use of a house if you haven't got a tolerable planet to put it on? And that's the kind of social character that room and board brings to every product they offer. Natural materials are an important part of their furniture design. So they respect the materials and always source them responsibly. It's nice to have a beautiful dining room table, right? But a dining room table that is beautiful and sustainably sourced, that's great. For more info, design inspiration, and helpful advice, go to roomandboard.com. Samuel Adams founder Jim Cook has always felt indebted to the restaurant industry. They gave him a shot way before Samuel Adams' Boston Lager became a household name.
2: Restaurants have been my customers since I first started, and I never forgot all of the people who kind of adopted me back when we were nothing. They put in our beer when they didn't need to. And I always promised myself that someday I was gonna find an opportunity to pay that back.
0: When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Jim got his chance to pay them back. Together with the Greg Hill Foundation, Samuel Adams quickly created the Restaurant Strong Fund and raised millions of dollars for the workers who needed it the most. For more information, visit restaurantstrong.org. How do we do that? Like, what's the fine line? And if you don't have the answer to this, this is okay because this is kind of like an overarching question that, I'm kind of tapping into just for myself. But, like, how do we do that without tokenization, right? Like, how are we making sure that we're, like, representing but, like, not assuming because you're Puerto Rican that you want to cook Puerto Rican food? Perhaps you want to cook Italian food or that's where you were trained in or that's your passion or that's what resonates with you. Like, how do we find, like, representation, respect and tokenization and keep them separate but keep them, you know, like— how do we navigate that space? What are your thoughts on yeah, it? Yeah,
1: that's a hard one. You know, I try to, I try not to ask chefs that, like, you know, I'm not going to ask a chef that is focused on, you know, I'm not going to ask a Vietnamese chef that's focused on new American food. Hey. Well, you make your version of, you know what I mean? (laughs) But you know, if you do if you do a little bit of research and like that is the food that they want to do, like that's the food that resonates with them. And then I need Mm -hmm. someone to develop that to show America how to make that dish, I will reach out to that person. Yeah. You know, and I think one thing that really kills me, and I've done a little bit of consulting with different companies about how to prevent these problems, right? And how to not Mm -hmm. center the wrong people with certain ethnic cuisines. One thing that I think is very important is if you're going to bring in, in America, a cuisine that is underrepresented, let's say Filipino cuisine, let's say in terms of what we know as food media, because there are places out there Mm -hmm. like Life and Time that are doing things correctly, There are great organizations, but I'm thinking about like big media that is in middle America and things like that. If you're going to try to introduce people to these cultures and these cuisines, for me, you have to put in the work to find someone Mm -hmm. that actually represents that culture. And I'd say once you do that, like let's say, you know, a network gives a Jamaican chef the show that they want to do then you can kind of play around a little bit with that cuisine. But like there was, uh, I'm not going to name the network, but there was a network that if you went and looked (laughs) up Filipino adobo, Mm -hmm. a classically trained French chef came up with his version of Filipino adobo. And that's the stuff that bothers me because what you're not doing is taking any time to find, and first Mm -hmm. off, there are, we're in LA, we're in New York, there's a ton of Filipino people. Like you're not, you know, you're it's, it's not hard to do the work to do that, but you're taking right. the lazy way and you're just giving this person a platform that truly doesn't, it, 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 that, that dish isn't even important to him. It's just something that they were probably like, hey, can you do Filipino adobo? He's like, sure, I'll have my assistant write it up, you know? Yes. And so there's just such a difference when he develops that recipe. And then from someone that literally grew up with their mom making that every day with mm-hmm. like, a, you know, a freaking rice cooker full of rice because you couldn't have a rice cooker empty at any time in an Asian household, (laughs) Uh, like that was my one job. You know, it's just so different to have that person tell the story than like that classically Shane chef that doesn't really have any ties to that culture. I just think the story and the connection is so important and is really what fuels that food. And so I just think it's really important that if you're going to make that decision, you want to showcase it to just do it in an authentic way. And tokenization is hard. But I think tokenization for me is trying to pigeonhole someone when that's not the food that they want to do. Because you do have mm-hmm. people, like I do have wonderful Chinese friends that grew up in, you know, Minnesota. Their food is is a casserole with potatoes and hash browns. So right. please don't ask them to make mm-hmm. their version of Szechuan food because that's not what they want to do. And, yeah. you know, I think it's important though, like as people that are seeking out this type of talent to just take the time to get to know that talent. But then also mm-hmm. like, why can't that person, that Asian person from Minnesota, why can't they also be the face of Minnesota food if that's how they grew up? Because truthfully, that's, right. that's just America. When people mm-hmm. ask me, where are you from? I say Seattle. And they go, that's right. no, but where are you really from? I'm like, oh, you mean like my parents? <laughs> my parents are from Vietnam. Yes, yeah. I'm Vietnamese. Is that what you're asking? Because where I am from is from Seattle, Washington, <laughs> you know? Right. And so. Right. I can make you fish and chips. I can make you some chowder. I'm very good at those things. But then I also cook Vietnamese food. I think tokenization is when people just want to fill a role and they don't care who that person
0: is. They don't care who it is. That's right. That's very true. All right. So we've had a pretty good lesson on respect versus appropriation. We've learned a little bit about tokenization, which is a huge conversation in our industry right now. We've had a lot of culinary media outlets come under fire for their uh, lack of diversity, which they should be held accountable for. So I'm really excited about this movement that's happening and I'm really excited that we share that um passion. That's always been part of our bond and our conversation. That and RB 90s R&B music is huge parts of our connection. But I want to talk about something else we have deeply in common. Ooh. Um food styling.
1: Oh yes. Yeah.
0: It's my greatest joy. It's the one thing I introduce my like people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm a food stylist by trade. Like, mm-hmm. let's let that be known right off top. But um, food styling, I wanna say you probably were the first person to really give me like a heads-on introduction to what food for TV should look like. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget, I did the worst food styling job for you. It was the worst. And I've never felt oh my gosh. so bad as I did the day I saw this disappointment in your face. I'll never forget <laughs> oh <my> it. <laughs> it was for G. Garvin. Mm. And he had these chickens that were supposed to be like rubbed. And I think I put too much rub or something. It was horrible. And you came out of the kitchen and you were like, these are the chickens? And I was like, yes. And you were like, Okay. <laughs> you disappeared. <laughs> it was probably one of my lowest food styling moments oh, um, ever. It was new. It was like the first time I had ever done, like, that was probably like my first infraction. And you were kind of like, all right, nobody panic here. But I was totally panicked on the inside. Oh, but um, I'm,
1: so, I'm so sorry I made you feel that way.
0: You didn't though. I mean, you did everything that you could do within your physical, visceral reaction to not like completely lose it, but I could totally see it in your face. I think it was in that moment that I realized the importance of like, for real, like this is food on camera is important. Having it right is important. How the talent feels represented as it relates to their food is really important. And I remember that day so well, because that was the day I really grasped that lesson, you know, Mm. and you helped me fix it you troubleshoot it immediately. It really, um, it was a real teachable moment for me. And so we are now food stylists. I'm definitely better than I used to be. From what I can tell by what you're working on over there today, you're still (laughs) um, eons better than me, which is great, because I could never be doing, it's totally true. (laughs) And I'm not ashamed to admit it. I love continuing to learn, but tell me how you feel about food styling. You've been doing it for a while. You're kind of doing it a little bit more exclusively now. How are you feeling with it? Like, do you love it still? Does it still give you random excitement? Tell me about food styling.
1: You know, I I do. I You know, when people ask me what I do, I usually start with recipe developer first just because it's, I just mm-hmm. love cooking. And I feel like with that, it's just, you know, in the kitchen and yeah, you're definitely thinking about, okay, what kind of garnishes are going to look good, you know, in the cookbook, mm-hmm. in the show where it actually ends up, but you're really just cooking and making it taste delicious. And You know, Ellen, I think we still did this back in the day. Like, I still want the food that we style taste good because I think wherever that chicken, I mean, someone still ate it. I'm very big on food (laughs) still being edible. And I remember I was with a newer food stylist and we had to do like, you know, the holiday shows that have like six turkeys, right? And I seasoned every turkey and every turkey people ate because there was a glycerin on it. It was like everything, like Food Network really taught me To use what the food was and make it as beautiful as you can naturally. Now, is that a Mm -hmm. slick of oil? Is that a little bit of finishing salt? Is that, you know, maybe a little bit of grenadine to make that meat look a little bit more medium rare? Sure, but it's edible. Because I just, for me, it just, I think especially, and you share this with me, when you come from restaurants, when you come from cruise ships and you are dealing with all this food, like, and you're feeding people. I feel a connection to food and I feel it disrespectful when I treat Mm -hmm. it in a way where I can't serve it afterward because I think about the farmer that grew that pig. I think about the salt that had to be, you know, made to season and all of these things that go into it. And it really breaks my heart when I see people really disconnect themselves from food. And I see that a lot, especially with like the competition shows where food becomes a prop. I think, and I've said this to someone because I, you know, every shoot that I'm on, I try to have a compost bucket and I'll take it home and I'll compost it myself if you don't have it on set. And I remember one time a newer intern came to me and said, Sue, it must be really hard for you to work on shows because of the food waste. And I'm like, not on the shows that I work on because I Mm -hmm. make it a point to, usually the people that I bring on as assistants, they have a connection to food too. Usually people from restaurants or just someone that like, isn't going to look at a loaf of bread and just chuck it because that's the easier choice, you know, like just trying to figure out ways. But I think edible food styling is very important. I think we probably both share that just like Mm -hmm. having that respect for food. And I think that when people ask about food styling, I say, you know, because I think that people kind of think of it as almost separate from food because they're just making it look good. Right. Mm -hmm, But I was like, mm -hmm. unless, you know, the fundamentals of cooking, you can't actually be a good food stylist
2: because that's
1: when you kind of lean on those tricks, you know, those fake things when you don't actually understand how to make a bird beautifully brown. Yes. Because, okay, so, you know, the birds in the oven, it's not getting as much color. Okay. You know, slick on a little bit more of that butter because butter is going to make it golden and then just bump up the heat a little bit. It's like knowing how to naturally make food Mm -hmm. look gorgeous. And so I still fall into that a lot, but I think, What I always have to teach people, especially that come from restaurants, is that food styling is a little bit of like you gotta be efficient, but you gotta take a step back and just Mm -hmm. really take the time. You know, to like, let's say you're doing a show and it's chicken legs, you gotta take the time to make sure that the four raw chicken legs match the four cooked ones. And that means left and right don't send me three left chicken legs and one right and then like it not match for the cooked ones because I can't put it on the sheet tray the same. And so I always have to tell the people that work under me, I'm like, just take a second and just make sure you're looking at four different pages right now and each page Needs to match. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the thing that's a little bit separate with food styling, like for show, than like when you're doing like cookbooks and stuff, which is more of a one off. I think food styling for show is like so fun because it's just like a puzzle. And once you actually get it, like you'll never look at food the same. They'll never shop the same, right? Like,
0: yep, that's so true. That's so true. Never. Can I just tell you, yesterday I was making a recipe. I was making something for dinner. And this particular recipe required so much time, mm-hmm. right? Like literal, like... Time leaves. Time, time <laughs> leaves, right? <laughs> and I was standing there and I immediately had like a flashback, like, oh my God, this just took me back to my Food Network days where in the beginning as an intern, my job was to just like pick the leaves off these five bags of time. And just like the smell, the moment, the way my feet were positioned, how I kind of just like hunkered down in that spot, like knowing I got to pick this whole little, it was just a little clamshell, Mm -hmm. nothing compared to what I used to do as an intern, but just picking that time. And I was like, oh, this just took me back, you know, but it made me remember like all the little things from picking the best cornflakes out of economy size boxes for Mm -hmm. one bowl Mm -hmm. to picking bags and bags of time for a catered dinner that's happening in the studio for 50 people, Mm -hmm. All of those experiences really count and have really made me who I am.
1: I mean, I just think that you are such an amazing human. And I, what's amazing, I think, for me about you, and one of the reasons I love, you know, even though we don't talk all the time, like just keeping in touch with you was important because since the beginning, I felt like you came into the network ready to learn about everything food, but you mm-hmm. also always were so big on social change. You know, like, I felt like that was a part of you. Like, I think you do She Chef now, right? Yeah. But you've been doing that for a long time. Yeah, I was doing that in New York,
0: unofficially. I remember
1: having conversations with you, and I, when this reckoning started, I don't know, I'm sure that you had the same moments. I mean, I just think there were times where I was just crying because Mm -hmm. there were just, I think that as a person of color, and I always say that. What I deal with as an Asian woman is nothing compared to what my black friends have gone through a hundred percent. And I always say that, and I want to be a strong ally because I always think you cannot love a culture without supporting the people that make that culture.
0: Yes. I think that is extremely,
1: extremely important. I think as a person of color in any industry that's dominated mostly by white people, you are made Mm -hmm. to feel really silly. For saying something at certain times or being the whistleblower and kind of like, no, no, it's, there's, there's, there's another Asian person or, no, it's, it's okay that this person's making that recipe because like, you know, like Donna in yeah. Milwaukee will understand. So I think that you are made to feel really crazy for a long time. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. when this reckoning was happening, you went back to all those moments that you kind of made yourself look the other way, right? You're like, oh, it's just me. It's, you know, it's not, this isn't really happening. They're not saying that because I'm a woman and a person of color. They're saying that they would say that to a white man. No, they won't. Yeah, You know? So I think though that you have always come in and it was part of your identity to help food media be better. And I saw that in you. And I just thought that was really powerful. And I'm just so proud of like what you've accomplished today. And like having this conversation, like, Just really wonderful. And I just think it's crazy because you have so many jobs, but that is a large part of your job, too, that people might not recognize as much as, like, food styling and recipe developing. But you're always making a difference, and that's part of your everyday life. And I think that's Mm. really amazing.
0: I'm always trying to make a difference out here. I'm always trying to clear the brush for us, you know? like That's so
1: unbelievably important. And I take that on whenever I'm in a position of, of management Mm -hmm. or power or hiring, I really try to not always just make the simple choice. Yes, I always try to go that extra effort and bring in someone, you know, I remember one time at Tasty, we had this wonderful older Hispanic woman and she was a PA and she just had to hustle Mm -hmm. and she was a good cook, you know? And I remember looking at her and just being like, Hey, you know, have you ever wanted to recipe develop? Like, I would absolutely bring you in again and train you myself to recipe develop. And it can be anything Mm -hmm. that you want to be. And Mm -hmm. Elle, like she looked at me like she had never been asked those words. She had had not been asked to do better. Not to do better, because nothing's wrong with being a PA, you know? But that there were tiers to what she could do. That there were like places that she could go. And Mm -hmm. I just, in that moment, I was like, everyone works really hard for what they do, but it truthfully, yeah. so many people are not given the same opportunities as others. Period. And I say this to people, especially when, you know, everything's happening in food media. And it's great to see that more black people, more Hispanic people, more are Latinx, um, you know, Asian people are getting these opportunities to not only go into companies and be part of, you know, to be talent or to be mm-hmm. managers. But I said, it's not enough to hire people. You have to give them the tools, the training, and the mentorship to be successful. Say it again. Yes, because what people, and I will say this, what my white friends are not realizing is that a lot of the people that are out there as food stylists, as culinary CPs, and all of these things, their paths are very different. They might not have the same training and the Mm -hmm. same things that you might have had, you know? One of my things that I said is like, you know, everyone's looking at the same people over and over for all these jobs, but you know where there is a ton of people that are the best hustlers, the most hungry and out of work, the food industry right now with a little bit of training, line cooks and people that worked at restaurants could be, Mm -hmm. they could run circles around us.
0: Yeah. They could transition into media easily.
1: They're going to be like, Oh, you, you want me to just cook a chicken? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, seven the, chickens, I do yeah, that every day. Yeah. Oh and, oh and I have 8 hours to do that. Yeah. they're going to be like, "Oh, you want me to go shopping for some onions?" Absolutely. You know, that's so right. I think that that is a a really big opportunity for us to pull from is like all of these wonderful restaurant workers that unfortunately that part of our industry has been decimated.
0: Yeah. That's you know, very true. and I think
1: that there's a big opportunity there to bring on some new people into this great industry that I I think is for me, food media is the most privileged mm-hmm. place in food.
0: That is a fact, one hundred percent. And don't you
1: think food media, like the worst day that we ever have in what we do, is still like the best day at a restaurant? Like, and that's why I just like you know being in the weeds at the restaurant. I just I don't yeah. I just have so much respect for that part of our industry, and I still think that it is part of food media sure. because without mm-hmm. food, without restaurants, without those chefs that we're at the beginning of this, we wouldn't have food media now.
0: No one would care. No, no one, one would, would care. care. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um,
1: yeah. So I am always very grateful for this industry. And that's why we want to bring people in. Yeah. Because it's a special
0: spot. It is. It's you know? a very special spot. And it's just one of those industries that, will take you no matter what, no matter what kind of burdens you carry, no matter what kind of past you have. Like, this is the most accepting industry. Like, if you have a passion for cooking, we don't care about your transgressions. We just want you to come here and make this good food, be safe, treat people with respect, and thrive here and make a living here. A moment in the walk-in. I'm so glad that we're starting to talk a little bit more about all the people in the industry right now, because a part of our conversation here at The Walk-In is called A Moment in the Walk-In. It's where one of our listeners writes a letter to our guest to ask for advice, and someone has written a letter asking for your advice. Are you ready to dish out some of the best culinary, professional, or personal advice that you could possibly think of on the fly? Oh, sure. All right, great.
1: Okay, let's do it.
0: Okay, So today's letter is from Miranda in Minneapolis. Miranda says, hi, Susan. I so admire your years of work in the culinary industry. What I admire most is that at the right time, you were willing to take the right risk. What is some advice or one piece of advice that you would give someone who's thinking about taking that next large move in life?
1: Wow. That's a really good question, Miranda. I think one of the biggest things when you're taking a risk in life is, and I say this all the time because I, um, I'm i 37. I do not have kids. I don't, I kind of answer to my own rules. And so whenever I take these really big risks, the person that it will affect is me. If I don't work for a year, thankfully that didn't happen. Uh, but if I did work for a year, I'm eating, you know, peanut butter jelly sandwiches. Right. You have a husband and kids, and I just don't know if that's the risk that you want to take. But
0: mm-hmm. I do
1: think, you know, that's like the greater, those are the big life bounds. I, my advice right. is really to think about at the end of the day, I always try to be positive and I try to, I say visionize, not visualize. I try to visionize what my future will be, you know, mm-hmm. and see myself and like where I want to be. But then I also do have to think about worst case scenario and like, can I survive and still live worst case scenario? And I right. kind of have to think about those two things. And unfortunately, the worst case scenario always wins out just because I'm taking those steps and making sure that like everything is still livable. But that's big picture. Smaller things. Like let's say um, you're a cook, but then all of a sudden you're like during this time, you're like, you know what? I really want to quit my corporate job and just, I want to become a baker, you know? Right. I think that with those things and those passion projects, I following what I love has never failed me. And Mm. following my gut has never failed me. Because I think that, especially during this pandemic, what it's showing us is what we really need to live and be happy and live a life that is fulfilling. Yeah. If you are doing something that is, you know, Getting you by in life, but it's not really mm-hmm. fulfilling you in any ways. I think that it is really important to look outside of your normal day to day and try to find and try new things that might be your next passion and I think it's important in life to always be looking at different things and not get too bogged down in the day to day and what what you what you're always doing, but you know if mm-hmm. something kind of sparks something and you follow that, follow that little bit of your heart and your soul.
0: well, you heard it Miranda. Always measure out the risk and who it affects before you take it. Also, move towards where your passion is. You know, don't run from it. Run towards it. Perfect advice. Yeah, that's the. Those are the three keys of life. Well, Suvu, I am so glad that you came into the walk-in with me today. And it was beautiful to catch up with you and to just... Know that you're still the culinary rock star that you've always been, that I've always known you to be. I mean, what else is there left to say? Susan Vu, everyone. Hand claps and finger snaps.
1: (laughs) Oh, I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I want you to know that the whole time that we've been speaking, I've envisioned us in the walk-in at the network.
0: Good, because that is actually where I originally experienced my first walk-in meltdown. So, boom.
1: Okay. I hope it wasn't over the chickens.
0: It was definitely over the chickens.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry. Definitely. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's walk-in at com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-in and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show.
2: The Walk-in is created and hosted by my daughter, Elle Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Han Margolis. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Caroline Rickard, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Galant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strahan is our intern. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, Newcoop, Room & Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk In is a production of America's Test Kitchen.
0: If you love The Walk In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up and coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.